Okay, hello everybody. Today is Thursday, and on Thursdays this year I've been doing a regular segment about the disappearance of Donna Lass from 1970. In addition to that, I am also the host of the Zodiac Killer Channel's Interviews with the Experts series, and I most recently interviewed Anne Penn, who is the author of What If Zodiac Golden State Solved, and I'll give you guys a couple previews for that interview that will soon be available on the Zodiac Killer channel. But before we begin, I would like to remind you guys that you can download this program for free at Launchpad 1. There's a link to that in the description box. You can go over to Amazon.com, have a look at the book Killer on a White Horse by me, Ned Dahan. It's a novel, murder mystery inspired by the Zodiac Manson connection. And feel free to visit the Teespring page. Remember, being weird is not a crime. But after talking to Ann Penn, she is someone who has written this book that highlights the similarities between the Golden State Killer and the Zodiac Killer, and even addresses the possibility of what if they are the same person. But I found that the absolute most fascinating part of our discussion were her comments on the disappearance of Donna Lass, and I will share some of those with you throughout this interview here, but I would like to do a little bit of a recap of some of the previous episodes because I think it will be a very nice segue into the material on Donna Lass and Anne Penn's whole theory. The first is that about two weeks ago I did an episode called Donna Lass Possible Ted Bundy Victim, and you could condense that entire episode down into one sentence, because I was responding to somebody's article, and the thesis statement of that article is, with the disappearance of Donna Lass, there are more similarities with the case of Ted Bundy rather than the case of the Zodiac Killer. And yeah, some guy on the internet was saying, Another what if, like what if Donna Lass was abducted by Ted Bundy, Donna Lass who was working at the Sahara Tahoe Hotel and Casino, abducted on September 6th of 1970. I mean, to the best of our knowledge, I believe she was abducted, but she disappeared from the Sahara Tahoe Hotel on September 6th of 1970 in State Line, Nevada, at some time between 1.40 a.m. and 2 a.m., and what happened to Donna after that? Well, I'll talk about some possibilities in this episode. Donna was working alone in the nurse's station in the Sahara Tahoe Hotel and Casino. She was a nurse there, administering things like first aid in what I understand to be somewhat of a secluded hallway. But that's just it. That guy was putting forward his theory that it was actually Ted Bundy. The problem is, though, his thesis statement wasn't outrageous at all that there are similarities between the disappearance of Donna Lass and the disappearances of other Ted Bundy victims. That's not outrageous. Not at all. But the true, true problem was all of his deception tactics, such as saying that, now, you guys, you guys in the audience, I want you to pretend for a second that my theory is true. Are you doing that? Are you pretending that my theory is true? Now, if you pretend that my theory is true, is it true or false? Oh, it's true? See, I'm right. I told you. I told you the whole time. I was right. Okay, I mean, that's more or less what he was doing. He was using a lot of very poorly designed media persuasion tactics. And to 
be 100% honest with you guys, I don't believe that Donna Lass was abducted and murdered by the serial killer Ted Bundy. If anything, the takeaway from that episode is Donna was in a vulnerable place. She's working the 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. shift at the nurse's station. She most likely walked to work that day, and um, more than a week after her disappearance, they did find her nurse's shoes in a bag in the nurse's station. They had muddied bottoms, suggesting that she walked to work in her nurse's shoes. Mike Morford shared something with me about how Donna would tend to spend time at the gambling tables in the casino because she did not like to walk home in the dark, so maybe that was what she was doing. Maybe she had a previously set up engagement, so to speak. But she disappeared sometime between one forty and 2 a.m. Okay, so it could have been a different opportunistic predator. It could have been someone from Donna's inner circle. And, I mean, why Ted Bundy with the amount of... um examination into Ted Bundy's activities. Donna Lass didn't seem to come up to the best of my knowledge. I mean, when I did the Ted Bundy episodes on this channel, I'd never encountered the name Donna Lass, but I suppose this is an unsolved case, right? The next point is that I responded to Lyndon Lafferty's theory in last week's episode about how he thought that Donna Lass was abducted by the, the Zodiac Killer and she was murdered to commemorate the one-year anniversary of the Lake Berryessa stabbing, which occurred on September 27th of 1969, but Lyndon Lafferty incorrectly stated the date of Donna Lass's disappearance as September 26th of 1970. Everything that I have found about Donna says that she disappeared on September 6th, not September 26th. But there was one sentence in Lafferty's book, about the disappearance of Donna Lass that I would like to share with you. He wrote the Zodiac Killer cover-up, also known as the Silence Badge. And when I was reading that, I encountered one line about how the overwhelming majority of documents in the Donna Lass case have not been made available to the general public. The case file has not been made available to the general public. And as someone who has been looking into this for a little while now, it's like, yes, these primary source documents are... They're, well, they're just not available online. So, Anne Penn, author of the What If book that I mentioned at the beginning and the person I talked to most recently on the Zodiac Killer channel, decided to research the disappearance of Donna Lass because she's investigating the Golden State Killer, investigating the Zodiac Killer, and she shared some things with me about her, um, well, her work, her research, her investigation, and the first point is, the case file for the disappearance of Donna Lass was so badly preserved that the documents began to decay at this point. And, I mean, electronic copies might even be impossible to obtain. This whole thing about having a case file that is available on the internet where people could read primary source documents, she's like, they were just simply decaying. But some of them were preserved on microfilm and... The younger generation is going to have no idea what I'm talking about. I didn't know what microfilm was until I was maybe uh, 16, I think, because I was doing this history project, and I went to the university library because I had this history class assignment, and they said, well, we don't have the book, but we have some things on microfilm that might be helpful to you. And I was like, what on earth is that? And as I understand, they condensed a bunch of, like, 
documents, books, even just anything that could be on a page were condensed into these little slides that you had to read in a projector. Maybe I'm explaining that in a bad way, but I think you can get the idea. They aren't on paper. They're on these little film slides. Microfilm, it's really small, right? Okay, I mean, now I get it, right? No, no, I think we all know about why they call it that. But yeah, you have to look at it through a projector, and that is also something that is not electronic, and you can't share that too easily. So to actually find out what happened to Donna, the clues in the case file may become non-existent in the near future. The second thing that Anne Penn shared with me as she began researching the disappearance of Donna Lass is, Donna had a boyfriend for the summer of 1970. That is not a far-out statement either. That's not a well-guarded secret. Even when I interviewed Mike Morford on the Zodiac Killer channel for the same series, he said the same thing, that yes, Donna was dating guys that summer. She was 25. She lived by herself. Well, for the summer of 1970, she's actually living in a room for rent with um, in somebody else's home, if I recall. But she moved to the Lake Tahoe region mostly for independence. And in Ray Grant's Zodiac Killer Solved, he even writes that one of the things that attracted Donna to the region is she liked the independent lifestyle. She liked the idea of working the 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. shift at the Sahara Tahoe Hotel and Casino as a nurse because she was practically her own boss. It, was, it wasn't very supervised. She could be her own person on her own time, and she's moving into this apartment on Pioneer Trail Road, the Monte Verde apartment complex, which is a 16-minute walk to the Sahara Tahoe Hotel and Casino. And to the best of my knowledge, she only stayed one night in the apartment on Pioneer Trail, the Monte Verde apartment. She only actually stayed there one night, because as I said, for the summer of 1970, she's living in that room for rent. But yes, she had a boyfriend, maybe more than one. But here's what Ann Penn truly shared, and it was the first time I had heard this. The authorities in the disappearance of Donna Lass never interviewed, questioned, or looked into the boyfriend. Now, I don't even know his name. This is stuff that maybe I'm learning about secondhand, thirdhand, maybe fourthhand. But that is what she shared with me, that Donna had a boyfriend prior to her disappearance, and the authorities never checked him out. Now, does that mean that he is somebody who could be responsible for her disappearance? Well, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I definitely would be curious about it. And you have to wonder, why wouldn't the authorities look at her boyfriend? Because Donna's working in this room at the Sahara Tahoe, a secluded area down the end of a hallway, and she leaves the room, and her nurse's shoes are left behind. She's already changed out of them. But she locked the door to the nurse's station before she left. And I hope that my understanding of this is correct. I mean, I'm learning new information about this all the time. Some people, you guys in the comment section, have given your interpretations of that. Some people are saying that, oh, well, she must have done that out of habit because I'm sure she would have locked the door if she were leaving the nurse's station no matter what. Other people think that she may have gone to see somebody whom she was familiar with at the time, somebody like a boyfriend who is just like, hey, come on, come on, let's just go over here, let's talk for a second. 
and something happened, maybe not even murder, maybe something like an accidental death or something, they start arguing about something and he pushed her and she fell and hit her head and he panicked. I don't even want to speculate further than that because I'm going to say something that I'm going to regret. And then he needed to do something. And after Donna last disappeared, there are these prank phone calls, hoax phone calls saying that Donna Lass will not be coming to work today. She has a family emergency, and no such emergency existed. That, um, well, Morph's analysis of that was just that somebody wanted to get their story straight. I thought the prank phone call was more about someone wanted to hide evidence, or they want to make sure that they've destroyed all evidence. Say it is that scenario, that somebody pushed her and she fell and hit her head. Well, that person's going to wipe down the whole area with a bleach or ammonia or something when no one's looking I mean, at a casino. I know that sounds a little bit far-fetched, but something similar. They're going to destroy any chance of um, people finding physical evidence. The alternative to that is there was this opportunistic predator who was somewhat familiar with Donna Lass, somebody who perhaps worked at the Sahara Tahoe, somebody who perhaps was... Um, well-known to Donna, or maybe he, and I'm going to say he for the sake of simplicity, he knew who Donna was, even though she didn't know him that well, and he's keeping an eye on her, and he abducted her at an opportune moment. And um, when I read the uh, book Zodiac Killer Solved, it gave the very simple breakdown of someone says, hey, my family member's having chest pains in the parking lot, please come quickly, because Donna is a nurse. She needs to go. She has to go. That's her duty. And somebody working at the nurse's station at one forty in the morning, well, it's somewhat of a vulnerable place to be in when it, when you come to think about it. Someone could say, hey, come to the parking lot. We need help. Come to this hotel room. We need help. Come out behind the uh, maintenance shed. We need help. And the nurse, who's practically her own boss, right? She's just working by herself. She's in a vulnerable place. Okay, no matter what happened to Donna, whether it's the argument gone wrong or it's the calculated abduction, what did the abductor do to her afterward? And during my discussion with Ann Penn, she proposed that Donna Lasp was buried underwater, placed underwater, that her body would have been discarded in the waters of Lake Tahoe. Because I've pulled up the graphic many times about how close the Sahara Tahoe Hotel and Casino is to the waters of Lake Tahoe. You can do this on Google Images, too. Just pull up the Sahara Tahoe in 1970, all throughout the 1970s, especially because Elvis performed there. Donna was buried either nearby, or but Ann Penn thinks that Don, Donna Lass was discarded in the water, that her remains were dropped into Lake Tahoe. And there's a very particular reason for that. Lake Tahoe is extremely deep, and it would be very, very difficult for anyone to recover human remains if they were dropped at a certain place. And the one that Ann Penn talked about in our interview was called Rubicon Point. Now, I'm pretty sure Ann did say this, and we can double-check once the interview was available on the Zodiac Killer channel, but she said the the waters that are nearby Rubicon Point and Lake Tahoe 
are 800 feet deep at the maximum. And just briefly discussing with Ann Penn, I wasn't sure why exactly she zoned in on Rubicon Point, other than she shared that she is somewhat of a local to the Lake Tahoe area, and that this would be a place where people would be familiar. And getting on Google Images, you could see that there is a cliffside that over overlooks the water, and if someone had easy access to an 800-foot burial ground, more or less burial at the lake, I can totally see how that could be a possible place. But I decided to look up some figures because it turns out that the maximum depth of Lake Tahoe is over 1,600 feet. It's one of the deepest lakes in America. And just a piece of trivia, in case you're curious, according to one website, I think it was backpacker.com, whole bunch of websites that I had never used before I pulled up for this episode. It said that the deepest lake in America is actually Crater Lake in Oregon. And um, that, of course, is, uh, well, I think you can get the idea about how it got that name. Okay, with Lake Tahoe, there are places much deeper than 800 feet. And on one website, it said that the average depth of Lake Tahoe was 900 feet. Another one said 1,000. If somebody is dropping human remains in water that deep. I agree, very difficult to recover, especially if they've been weighted down to a certain extent, tied to some type of heavy object. If that is indeed what happened to Donna, just examining some possibilities in this episode. But I was, um, I may have also been on backpacker.com, where I found something that supported a claim that was made by Ann Penn in our interview, and that is that After 800 feet, like if human remains were actually to go down 800 feet in Lake Tahoe, then they would be very well preserved because the water is so cold, but it doesn't freeze. Therefore, it really would preserve the remains. But I will tell you something firsthand about 800 feet of water, 1,600 feet of water. It's not an easy thing to dive to. And I say firsthand because this is going to sound really, really dorky. However, I've never been scuba diving. I've never even attempted to go scuba diving. I think I attempted snorkeling once, but I did not succeed. I wanted to be a scuba diver as a kid because I would always watch this thing on the Discovery Channel. It's like a VHS tape. Maybe it was even the Disney Channel, something like Disney Discovery, if they're owned by the same place where they were at one time. That stands out of my memory, and I was like, I'm going to be a scuba diver, and I'm going to have white oxygen tanks on my back. I don't know why I wanted white tanks as opposed to blue, or yellow, or green. There are many colors out there. I wanted white, but I've absolutely never been scuba diving. But I did learn from watching programs like Nat Geo, Discovery, anything science-related. 800 feet is a very difficult dive, and not a lot of people do that. And I was even watching one program as a teenager talking about how this woman had broken the record of going beyond 1,200 feet, you know, using a certain type of uh, apparatus. She, like, she dove the deepest using that particular apparatus, 1,200 feet. Not an easy thing to do. I mean, she broke a record doing it, you know, because all the different oxygen tanks have their own records and so on, or the different types of um, mechanisms. I mean, the snorkeling versus scuba diving, all different records for the deepest dive, right? 
But the thing that's so dorky about all of this is, that goes to show you that 1,600 feet almost out of the question that people are actually going to be able to dive down and successfully find Donna Lass's remains if she were indeed buried at, you know, at a, at a place on the lake. I'm always, I'm really trying to avoid saying burial at sea, but because this is Lake Tahoe. That's what Ann Penn suggested. Now, I've been horribly critical of the show, The Hunt for the Zodiac Killer, the one on the History Channel. But they did propose something that Donna Lass was murdered and then buried in the mountains surrounding Lake Tahoe throughout this entire series, even before I watched those video clips about how they were investigating the disappearance of Donna Lass. I thought the same thing. I didn't think that her remains were discarded in the waters of Lake Tahoe. Instead, I thought that she was buried in the mountains. I just thought that if this were an opportunistic crime, someone would want to do something a little bit more covert, a little bit more uh, sneaky, just driving into a very, very deserted place of the forest and burying Donna Lass's remains. I began the episode talking about some recaps. I also did a segment talking about the case breakers and Dale Julin and their theory about what happened to Donna Lass, and that is that Gary Francis Post, their Zodiac killer suspect, was also the person who was responsible for the murder of Donna Lass, even though Donna Lass has never been recovered to this day. But they believe that Donna Lass was hanged in a tree. Maybe, maybe she was murdered in a different way, maybe strangled with a rope, and then her remains were hanged from a tree for a while. But Dale Julin, the researcher from the Case Breakers, claimed that he could locate the specific tree down to the individual tree trunk they would reveal information about the disappearance of Donna Lass, and he was unable to do so. But Colonel Reb, the person who shared that article with me, did point out that the Zodiac Killer sent in the Halloween card that said, By rope, by knife, by gun, by fire, October 27, 1970, mailed to Paul Avery with his name misspelled Paul Avery Lee. And what Colonel Reb said is, the Zodiac killed by gun, right? Lake Herman Road, Blue Rock Springs, the Paul Stein murder, the Zodiac killed by knife at Lake Berryessa, and even rope by knife on the car door. Where is the murder that took place by rope? Well, there is the disappearance of Donna Lass, and that could be the answer to it. I appreciate the thinking. I mean, I do. I do. Is that actually what happened? Unsolved case. I'm not sure. I definitely don't believe if there is a very strong Zodiac killer connection between Donna Lass and whoever the Zodiac was, but no, I definitely do appreciate that type of thing from Colonel Reb, because then you could also look at the Kathleen Johns incident that occurred on March 22nd of 1970, where her car was set on what? Fire. By rope, by knife, by gun, by fire. So you have crimes that were committed by gun, crimes that were committed by knife, and the crimes that were committed by fire. I mean, if only the Stein murder weren't factored into that, then it would be completely, completely consistent with the birth of the Zodiac character, because there wasn't a letter or phone call made after the Lake Herman Road murders with the Zodiac killer. Instead, the Zodiac wrote after the Blue Rock Springs shooting, the first letter Three copies of it were mailed to San Francisco newspapers, right? And that happens after the Blue Rock Springs shooting and before the Lake Berryessa stabbing. 
between July 4th and September 27th of 1969. Then Blue Rock Springs would be the crime committed by gun, Lake Berryessa by knife, the Kathleen Johns incident by fire, and the Donna Lass incident by rope. If she were indeed hanged from a tree... But this guy, Dale Julen, says he found the tree, according to his calculations and his theory, and there was nothing there. And it's just like, oh, well, I mean, I don't think the casebreakers have an ounce of credibility. I think that they are frauds. They are possibly hucksters, but they're definitely frauds in my book. I mean, actually, I shouldn't say that because they're the ones who are going to be selling a book. There's going to be this book coming out called Catching Zodiac, I think is the title from Dale Julen. Yeah, he's probably going to make a lot of money based on the publicity that his suspect, Gary Francis Post, who was a suspect in both the disappearance of Donna Lass and the Zodiac crimes. He's probably going to make a lot of money from that. Shame on him, and mostly just shame on the case breakers for spreading all of this disinfo. Because a big problem with that by rope, by knife, by gun, by fire theory is the Stein murder. On October 11th of 1969, the Zodiac Killer killed Paul Stein. Yeah, a knife was used to cut his shirt. He was killed by gun. Nothing about fire, nothing about rope. It just doesn't fit. After the birth of the Zodiac Killer persona, I don't see how that matches up. Unless you're going to be like one of those people who says, well, you put the Zodiac symbol on top of Mount Diablo, and it divides it into four quadrants, and certain crimes are committed by gun in this quadrant, and other crimes are committed by knife in this quadrant, and this one's for fire, this one for rope. I don't know. But more importantly, what happened to Donna Lass? Was she hanged from a tree? I don't see an ounce of evidence to support that. I think it's a much more plausible theory to look at about how was she murdered in the Sahara Tahoe, or lured to the parking lot, and then driven to a different location, and then her remains were discarded in the water. But I think, though, we need to go back to something very important. Was she lured out of the nurse's station by someone with a fake emergency? Or was it a boyfriend who uh, talked to her? Hey, baby, come over here. I got someone important to tell you. And she's like, I don't care. I'm done with you. It's over. And then he did something to her. People interpret the, ev the evidence in both ways, and I think there's a fair case for either one. Now, studio staff has been trying to convince me of one thing, and doing a pretty good job of it, and that is that Donna was probably going to meet somebody on September 6th of 1970 at 2 a.m. She was not planning to meet her friend Joanne Getchy until um, the next day, so she wouldn't have been planning to meet her at September 6th of 1970. She had a planned meeting the next day to meet up with someone, her friend who lived in San Francisco and was driving to the South Lake Tahoe area to see Donna's new apartment. But that didn't happen because Donna had already disappeared. So I think it's highly possible she had a planned meeting with someone. Does that person show up early? I don't know. But knowing the story, or hearing the story rather, that Donna Lass would spend time at the gambling tables after work because she didn't want to go home in the dark, and she would spend uh, an upwards of three or four hours there until it would get light. I think that's also a plausible explanation. Of course, she doesn't want to sit around in the casino wearing her nurse's shoes. Yeah, she changed shoes. I can see that. 
I mean, without having those documents from the case file available, I think it's somewhat of an uphill battle to find out what happened to Donna. What were were her exact choices? But I can't wait for Michael Morford's new series on the disappearance of Donna Lass. He has also interviewed Joanne Ketchy, Donna's friend, who was supposed to meet her the next day. I think that there are going to be a lot of new developments that will be very fascinating. And... And one day, one day, I hope we can get answers about what happened to Donna Lass. So as of now, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and you can always like, subscribe, follow along with any of this. And please feel free to contact me at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. I'm also available on Facebook. My Facebook is in the description box. And Instagram, of course, blackboxned88 on Instagram. I will see you over there for the bonus podcast. Until next time.